54 weeks ago, uh, my brother-in-law died in our guest bedroom after months of being racked by the evils of leukemia. 52 weeks ago, my friend Tripp, and you're in my pastor, died racked with the evils of mental illness. 40 weeks ago, my friend John, our beloved Sexton, died unexpectedly while celebrating his birthday with his amazing wife. He died at the beach that he loved, and I didn't know anyone who loved God's creation more than that man. And there was Barry, and before them, Barbara, and since then, so many of your friends and fathers and mothers and siblings. So what do we do with this kind of loss? If you are new to Redeemer, you haven't been here in the last 54 or 52 or 40 weeks, um, you may not have experienced this shared grief that we have, but you are more than qualified to enter into this space. Because 25,000 people have died with respect to COVID in North Carolina. Over a million in the U.S., six million worldwide. And if you don't know a single one of those people, which would be hard for if that to be true, you have still experienced loss and suffering, a lost friendship, a lost ability, even a lost hope. Pain is a universal human condition. The scriptures know this, and they actually invite us into it. And they invite us into the story of one who is called the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I'm preaching just on two verses today, but in some ways I feel like I'm preaching on all of scripture. Psalm 42 says, My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? And the other from Romans 8, one of the definitely Mount Rushmore chapters in the Bible. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. These verses are separated by a thousand years and yet are utterly united in the story of the scripture on how we deal with God and our grief in hope that God actually gets our pain and gets us in our pain. The verse and the verses in all of scripture are an invitation to us to quote Dan Allender, to enter the tragedy of living in a fallen world and simultaneously struggle with God until our hearts bleed with hope. There is something that the scripture invites us to that I'm for today calling a Godward groaning. And, and, and groaning Godwardly, if you will, is not instinctual. 
20 years ago, I came across a book that is truly amazing. It's Philip Yancey's book, Disappointed with God. One of the later store copies of that book had a sticker on it, and it said, in metallic gold sticker with bright writing, 100% money-back guarantee. If for any reason you're dissatisfied with disappointment with God, return it to Zondervan Publishing for a full refund. I'm glad you see the irony. (laughs) What a pretense and a self-protection. You can't even be disappointed with Zondervan, much less God. Eugene Peterson shares the same sentiment. One of the most offensive phrases, he said, to appear in recent literature for pastoral care is grief management. To use techniques of bureaucracy and business with people in their most human and most vulnerable time is insensitive as it is inhuman. And yet the scripture gives us language to express a Godward groan to express our groaning, our grief, in his direction. Psalm 42 is actually kind of a famous psalm. We're in three verses in. If you go back two verses beforehand, it is, As the deer pants for water, so my soul longs for you. Great 90s hymn on that one, by the way. I've seen posters when there were lots of posters around. And now pins on Pinterest of this verse. And I don't like a single one of them. Because it looks like Thomas Kincaid interpreted this verse on an English countryside. The early morning with dimples of soft light and Bambi peacefully lapping up the the, the stream of cool water welling up over everything. This is not that picture. It's a picture of a panicked prey who has outrun her predator in the middle of a desert gasping for Breath, mouth, baked dry. It is a desert parched by the blazing sun with no water in sight. The writer goes on to say, My tears have been my food day and night. God's giving us language that is able to go back to him and say, I'm panting for sustaining water, God. And all I've got is the taste of salt down my cheeks and onto my tongue. And he gives us these words, inspired by the Spirit himself. Deep down, body, thirst, sun-baked, dry, parched without relief. And your only ice chips are your own tears. Theologians call Psalm 42 a psalm of lament, which just means that it is a song to help us express our pain, our groaning, and form us in our pain and our groaning. So I just want you to hear this. God wants you to be honest about your pain, to own the groaning. Tears are a gift from God. And in his miraculous way, shaped into an offering back to God. And he invites this very way of being in the world. To sing the lyrics of Godward groaning. 
And he's given it to us because he loves us. And he wants to enter into the tragedy of this fallen world with us. God breathed lyrics of grief so that we might take to God that groaning. It was in the hymnal of God's people. So we lean into that groaning. God wants you to express the pain because in some miraculous way, it's actually where he meets us in really amazing and beautiful ways. It's actually what's happening in the first part of the Romans verse I was giving you, or that I read to you. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It doesn't start with the comparing the glory. It starts with the considering of the suffering. He presumes there's an inventory of the brokenness of this world. And that inventory is not passive. It examines, it assesses, it evaluates the pain that is in this world that we experience. Grief denial is folly if it's not idolatry. The God of the universe gives us this language to groan and he asks us to enter into it. He wants us to look at the things the way they are, not the way we pretend them to be. Again, it's not just about our ability to giving us words to express the grief, though that is a wonderful gift. It's actually there to remind us to grieve, to stay in it. The more I've learned about my own grief and groaning before God, the more I've seen how much I avoid it like the plague. Some people blame that it's because I'm a four on the Enneagram, but I don't think that has anything to do with it. We all know how to avoid grief. Stay busy. Stay angry. Stay happy. Stay numb. Stay detracted, distracted. Stay drunk or high. Keep grinding. Some of us, when we operate in those systems, we, we become cynics or stoics. We become Heroes, in the negative sense of that word, we become optimists. We become apathetic. Y'all, when that starts to form in us and it becomes like the permanent default for us, we're in trouble because cynicism is life with an arrogant scowl. It's a way of dissecting the grief at arm's length and never letting it in. And apathy is a, is, is a life with shrugged shoulders, but it's a still a hermetic seal upon the heart. Heroism is a life with gritted teeth, but it's just taking up arms against the pain you already feel. Optimism is a Stepford smile, but it's just adding saccharin to the bitterness of the life to help it go down. All these are temptations um, to lean away from the groaning, and, and there are parts of all of that that are really good and important in our journeys through grief. But when they become the thing, you cannot groan toward God because you will neither have your groaning or God. So will you groan? Will you let that groaning lift your head or look down at the face that sees you from God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
Facing grief is facing the reality of the pain in the world and the groaning that if you're going to groan like this, you will have the question at some point, where is God or who is this God? I've always thought that they there, that they say to me all day long, that was the mockers later in 42 where they're the uh, opponents of the psalmist. I think that's probably a good um, interpretation, but now I wonder also if the tears themselves are the they, it's actually the closest antecedent if you want to do grammar, the they that are asking the question. I'm not sure it's not purposefully ambiguous. One day we may understand. But groaning creates an existential crisis. In it, people struggle to see or believe God or that God can exist in that kind of pain. That's the problem of pain. The great poet Kendrick Lamar says, this is for my people that stress in whenever times is hard. Your mind's slipping, wondering, is there really a God? Knowing you shouldn't think that way and trying to freeze your brain. But whenever there's pain, that feeling remains. That's exactly what the psalmist is talking about. Look, I'm happy to have a philosophical discussion with you about the problem of pain. I'm I'm trained in seminary to answer that question. It's just not the real problem of the problem of pain. The real problem of pain is not philosophical. It's actually physiological. The problem of pain is that it hurts, and it hurts deep down. But God gives us language to own that and lean into it. 54 weeks ago, Springer was trying to figure out how she was going to deal with her uncle's death. And in between shucking lacrosse balls as hard as she could at the goal and running around, she stopped. We sat down and she stared at the real pain. I was so proud of her. Because her question to me was, Dad, how do you still believe? She was living in the reality that the psalmist and the scripture invite us to live into. The deluge of pain creates a deluge of doubt. And the God who knows you're doubting him has asked you to enter into that about who really he is. Can we really trust him? Is this a sham or is it? Is it real? Let this encourage you. God himself gives you language to doubt God himself so that he would show you that he is real. And when he invites you into that place, he doesn't leave you there or leave us there. Because he is the God who actually entered into human suffering. Not as a bystander, but as a participant himself, a victim of all that is broken in this world. And that is that magic moment, that sacred space where hope starts to eke out of the situation. It's a story 
that ties or lassos our story into his story of what he's doing about the pain in the world. And to use Shakespearean terms, it turns from a tragedy into a comedy, comedy not funny, comedy that there will be a beautiful ending. And it turns the horror into hope. From groaning to a God who has groaned with us. That's where the pivot of hope happens in Paul's second half of the verse. For I consider the sufferings of this present time, and they are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. He's considered the sufferings, and now he's weighing them. That's the language there. That's the kind of metaphor that he's using. And he's saying, when you weigh those things, they're not worth comparing It's an image of scales, literally. And it doesn't tip the scale. When we remember the word glory means, at least in the Old Testament, something like weight, it is clear what Paul is saying. The future glory has so much weight to it that our present sufferings are feather light. And this is not a man who didn't understand sufferings. Sufferings don't move those scales. About three years ago, I was preaching on this Romans 8 passage, and I asked someone to write some of their thoughts for this verse, and they wrote this. It seems to me that I consider is the decision that Paul has made in light of the deep and ongoing consideration of both pain and promise. It seems to me that as he's weighed them out, that the glory to be revealed for him becomes the truest truth. When I am feeling the pain and fighting for hope, landing by faith on the side of hope doesn't often, always, or very often, mitigate the pain. I think we can get confused on this, this person writes. Like Paul's words were here Uh, mean that if we put greater weight on the glory, that suffering won't be as bad, he writes. I think this is BS. I shortened it. The suffering is the suffering, and the pain is the pain. Hope is not an anesthetic. It's just hope. While it doesn't ease the pain, it does free me from despair and bitterness and resentment, and it gives me a reason to get up in the morning. Anybody been grieving where you can't get up in the morning? To keep living and loving and risking and forgiving in spite of the pain because of the weight of glory. I don't think I could say it better. Here's the deal, though, my friends. This is not optimism. This is hope. Optimism is folly because it trusts God to work things out the way you want them to work out. Hope is trusting God will work things out and wipe every tear from your eye. It's leaning your story, again, lassoing that story into the story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus.
that is where the magic of hope comes in. This means it is possible to have good grief. But it's good grief like Good Friday. But Good Friday is good because of Easter Sunday. Theology does not stand in the emergency room or the funeral home is no theology at all. But theology without the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come is also no theology at all. God asked me and asks me and you for me to stare at my, the coffin of my dead brother-in-law, to lament my friends and my colleagues, and to hope, as crazy as it sounds, that it is not the end of that story. It is not the end of our story. To exclude the recounting and the weighing of the resurrection of Jesus and the life of the world to come from the recipe of grief that you have to live out is to do something that is not true. Paul goes on to say that it's in the twinkling of an eye that our bodies will be made incorruptible. And we will experience him and ourselves and each other and all creation as it's meant to be. For me, he asked to believe that the miracle of Jesus' empty tomb will repeat itself in a South Georgia field. He asks us to hope that my glorified arms will hold my glorified brother's head with healed bodies, and we will embrace. Yes, he calls us to look at the bleak reality of the pain that we live in, and he dares us to hope beyond the grave as if it were just as true that he will redeem even death itself by his own resurrection. When Springer asked me the question, I wasn't really pleased then with my answer. But now I see that it was probably better than I thought. (laughs) My answer was, I don't know. I don't know why I still believe. And then I said, but I I cannot be honest with you. I would be a liar if I said that God has not proved himself over and over and over again to me, to you, to our family, to so many others, and therefore is worthy of our trust, and that his words have made themselves true over and over and over and over again, just like the pain and billows that we experience. It's been over and over and over again, but you can't deny one and keep the other or keep the one and deny that. You just can't do that. I cannot be intellectually honest with you and tell you, Where is your God? I would say, I have the question sometimes, but he's there. And I don't get him. I don't understand how it works. But there is no denying it. He has promised us new life, and we've had hints of it even now. So I tell you, I do not understand God. I do know we can trust him. And one day, 
One day he promises to wipe every tear from our eye. Now, there's a sneaky way to hear this sermon, and I don't want you to hear this sermon that way, is now go work on your really good grieving. Like, go work it out as a grief management tool. And when you get grief right, then it'll be Godward and it'll be fine. I do not want you to hear those words from me. It will only lead to your despair or your arrogance. The groaning Godward is definitely asking us to stop and groan and turn our eyes towards God and to compare it, to weigh it to the glory of the resurrection. But it does not depend on you. You don't have the power to make that miracle happen to move towards hope. What you have is the ability to stay there and watch him move. He's not asking for your positive mental attitude so you can pull yourselves up by your new tool of grieving bootstraps with theological truisms now in a couple verses. What he's saying is, what the gospel says, is that it's not about your ability to do it, but about his sovereign grace coming down and scooping up the brokenhearted. And he's the one who called himself the resurrection and the life. It's about the God who made us, the Christ who saved us, and the Spirit who comforts us. And all Paul is doing here is saying, collapse upon the hope of glory. Run to him in your pain. Endure the groans in light of that future glory that he has made for you. Because Jesus is the high priest who sympathizes with all of our pain. He is the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And if you're going to be acquainted with Jesus, you're going to be acquainted with grief. He's the one who sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's the one on the cross who who took on the pain of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Using the same hymn book that we use in Psalm 42. He's the one that heard the jeers, heard the mocking, under the mocking sign, King of the Jews. He's the one who suffered in hands, feet, and inside, but by whose wounds we're healed. He is the one who sipped bitter vinegar on the cross and yet pours out wine for us at the table, both in practice now and on the great day. And yet he's the one who's also silenced heaven and earth by being risen from the dead, conquering death itself. And he's the one who promises to make all things new, wiping all tears from our eyes. Look, if you don't know much about Jesus, let me tell you one little story. I've got like four endings. It's like a Tolkien novel here. Um, You know what I'm saying, right? There's so many endings. (laughs) Uh, If you don't know this Jesus, let me give you a story about how Jesus dealt with death of his friend. His friend was named Lazarus. And he went to visit him, visited his family to comfort them. It was just after he claimed that statement that I'm the resurrection and the life. And yet he was determined to both fully participate in the grief and give also a foretaste of what that future glory that would be revealed would be. When Jesus got there, he didn't explain his worldview. He didn't say, I told you that we live in a fallen world. Look at the devastation that sin has caused both in the world and in us. And look how you've contributed to it as well. He didn't stay blank-faced on the side, unmoved and inaccessible. 
He didn't say, buck up, y'all. I'm about to do something that's going to blow your minds. He didn't say, it's okay, he's in a better place. Or worse, he's an angel. Terrible theology. Now, one of the most profound sentences in the shortest verses in the Bible is, Jesus wept. The Lord of the universe, the sovereign and omnipotent God, faced reality as it was, heart-rending, and he wept. He cried real tears in front of real people to a real God over the loss of his real friends. He groaned, and then he raised Lazarus from the dead to give us that dual magical reality. Look, in Christianity, you don't get grief right, but you do get God, the one who grieved with us. You get friends who will groan with you. You get worship services when you're too scared to grieve, but people will carry you along. And you get hope. It is so frustratingly hope deferred, but you get real hope that he will make everything new. There are people in our church who have learned to do this, this groaning godwardly Claudia Abbey is one of them. Um, and you've been that for Laura, as many of you have, and many of you for Jen as well. You've been the hands and feet of our Lord Jesus. It was time for Laura to return to the beach. Wasn't quite ready to go. First time since John died there. In small group, Laura told her of that struggle to go back, and Claudia raised her hand and said, I would, I'd love to go with you. Claudia recounts that it was so meaningful for her to be with Laura in such a special time and see the place that John loved so much. I think I got the story right. I think Laura had gone to bed and Claudia was still up and, if you know Claudia, was listening to music or singing music, as she's apt to do. And Chris Rice came on while she was at the beach. Now rise up everything that lives Flap your wings and leap for joy. Oh, forest, lift your arms and sway. Clap your hands, you ocean waves. And your praise goes on. And when my final breath you lend, I'll thank you for the life you gave. But that won't mean the praises end. Because I won't be silenced by the grave. And your praise goes on. I'll be running to your throne with every nation, tribe, and tongue. To your arms I'll fly. I'll gaze into your eyes. Then I'll know as I am known. And your praise goes on. Look, y'all. Only a living God can give a gift like that in a situation like that. It is so desperately needed. He is alive. And he promises to wipe every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your kindness is beyond measure. Your sovereignty is hard to understand. But Lord, if you had not suffered, how could we trust you? 
that you have suffered and we can. And you rose from the dead. And it is our hope. Amen.